Will you please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5? James chapter 5. We'll be looking at the first six verses. We want everybody to be able to follow along. So Gene and Len have some Bibles. If you'll get their attention, they'll get one of those to you. And it's marked at that passage, so you can turn right to it. James chapter 5, the fifth and final chapter in this uh, marvelous book that we've been studying for several months now. And over the next few weeks, we'll come to a conclusion. In this series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Real Faith, that is, James gives tests, evidences of authentic, real, genuine faith. As we've seen throughout the series, the word faith in your New Testament is the same word for belief. So what is being tested then is whether or not what we say we believe is genuine, whether or not we really believe what we claim. Randy Alcorn, in his excellent little book called The Treasure Principle, begins with a story of a man traveling on foot through uneven terrain, and he has with him a stick, a staff, to steady his balance as he goes. He's taking a shortcut across another man's property. And at one point, as he plants his staff in the ground, it just plunks against something. And he tries again to penetrate the ground with his cane, but he's hitting something. And from the sound of it, it's not ground and it's not rock. And so he stoops down and he brushes away the dirt and he finds a case that's outlined in gold. And it looks like it's been there for decades. And he opens it. And in it he finds gold coins, jewelry, and precious stones of every color. It's a treasure more valuable than anything that he's ever imagined. He figures that a wealthy person must have buried, buried it, but then died suddenly, and the secret of its location died with him. And then Randy Alcorn goes on to say this about what that man found. From the moment of his discovery... The traveler's life changes. The treasure captures his imagination, becomes the stuff of his dreams. It's his reference point, his new center of gravity. The traveler takes every new step with this treasure in mind. He experiences a radical paradigm shift. And that story of that traveler finding that treasure is captured by Jesus in one verse in your New Testament, where Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. And this is a theme that you find throughout the Word of God. That we all pursue that which gives us joy. We go after. We put our effort and our time and our money into that which we believe will fulfill our desire. That man was willing to sell all that he had so that he could go back and buy that piece of property because he knew what was there, that treasure that motivated him and his actions. And this is why in the Bible, 
Money is so often spoken of in terms of our relationship to God. You remember that Jesus said, it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now he did go on to say, what's impossible with men is possible with God. But the point that money is a threat to our relationship with God is found throughout the Bible. And the reason for that is because money is the means by which we choose what we want most. Money is the currency, literally, by which we are able to pursue that which we want the most. And so think of this. Every time you and I spend, we're indicating what we value. And this is why Jesus said, you cannot love God and money. And that's because you can't have two gods. It's really a contradiction in term, two gods. One of them is not God, after all. And so you can't love God and money or anything else for that matter. And so the Bible is replete with this theme of these, this, these examples of how money is a threat to our relationship with God. And when our relationship with God is altered, when it changes for the better, that is evidenced by the way we pursue our desires through money. There's an example of that. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is preaching a message of warning and of the need for repentance. And when he is finished with his message, those who heard him say, well, then what shall we do? And notice what John the Baptist has to say. When asked, what should we do then? The, John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. And then tax collectors came to be baptized. <laughs> this time of year, what a cool thing that would be. Tax collectors getting saved. These tax collectors come to be baptized. Teacher, they ask, what should we do? And John the Baptist says, don't collect any more than you're required to. Now, you all remember that tax collectors, you know, were thieves. They were known as thieves because they were agents of the Roman government. And the Roman government would say, this is how much is required, but they would extort additional money from those who were paying the taxes. And so John the Baptist is saying, no longer extort that money. And then the Bible says some soldiers asked him, what should we do? Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The soldiers likewise were exercising their power in an unauthorized way in order to get extra money. He's saying be content with your salary. Now I want you to notice that all three of these evidences of repentance have to do with money. And a paradigm shift in the way one sees his relationship to money because of this altered view of his relationship to God. Likewise, Zacchaeus, you remember. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. Jesus said, today I will, I will dine with you. Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house. The Bible says he stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now notice what Jesus says. 
Today, salvation has come to this house. Notice the connection between our relationship with God and the way we view material possessions. The early church. The first church in Jerusalem that we read about in the opening chapters of the book of Acts was characterized this way. The Bible says, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. And then going on throughout the book of Acts, as the gospel went from city to to city, you see conversions take place. And when those conversions take place, you see evidence of that conversion in the way people view material possessions. And so Paul goes to the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was known for its worship of one of the seven wonders of the world, a statue to the great goddess Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians. Some of you will remember that. And there were whole industries that had gathered around the worship of of Diana. A riot occurred in the city of Ephesus because the craftsmen who made the trinkets and sold the stuff related to the worship of Diana knew they were going to be put out of business if all these people kept becoming Christians. And some of them were involved, involved in occult practice related to Diana. And here's what the Bible says. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. That would be well over a million dollars today. You remember the story of the widows, in the King James language, the widow's might. She had two coins to give. And Jesus is watching as person after person come to the temple and and drop in their, their offering. And then she gives her two coins. And Jesus says, they gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. You'll remember that Jesus had an encounter with one called the rich young ruler, a young man who came to Jesus and said, Good master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? Now this is a confident, cocky guy who believes he's good enough to do enough good to go to heaven. And what's Jesus going to say to this? Is Jesus going to say, here's a prayer, repeat after me. He's got this evangelistic prospect. This guy says, how can I get to heaven? And do you remember what Jesus' answer was? Go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. The Bible says that young man went away sorrowful because he had many goods. This man's heart was still devoted, not to God, which is Jesus' point, but rather to his real God, his money. And so today, you've come in this room, and especially those of you who are new to our church, perhaps it's your first time here, you come in and the preacher gets up and he's talking about money. And we've already had the kids give, and we've already given like we do every week, and now I'm here talking about money. And if you look at the insert in your program today, the outline, you'll see at the top, 
And you'll see at the top of the screen, the name of this message is, What's in your wallet? <laughs> I don't really care what's in your wallet. I really, I really don't. I'm just using that because it's a current commercial. But you'll see by the time we get to the end that God very much does care about what's in our wallets and purses and how we handle that which has been entrusted to us. This message, then, is obviously about money. And if you're here for the first time, you may be thinking, oh, no, another pitch for that. Well, hear this. I talk about money when it's in the text that we're considering. And in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we are going to see that the topic is about material possessions. And it is in the texts that we consider from week to week more often than one might think. And if we're using our resources contrary to God's design then that is also mentioned in the passages we consider from week to week more often than we would like. Now, why is that? Why is it that if you're just going systematically through the Bible, inevitably you're going to bump into this topic of, of money and material wealth? Well, here's why. It's because the Bible contains 2,350 verses dealing with money and possessions. 15% of everything that Jesus said had to do with that topic. If you were to add up all of the verses in the Bible on prayer and faith and heaven and hell, there are still more in the Bible about money and possessions. And so you do hear about it, even in churches that don't harp on it, like ours. Because it's a subject that is near to God's heart. Because God knows that how we handle money affects and reflects our relationship with Him. God knows that we have a fascination with money, with material goods, because we see it as our passport to obtain what we desire. And for us, it's a clear and obvious example of success defined the way our culture defines success. So I'm talking about money today because it's in the text and because God speaks of it in Scripture often. But I want you to know I am not, and especially those who are new, I'm not doing this because our church overall has an issue. We don't. This faithful congregation, earlier in the last year, gave over $130,000 in just a, a three-week period on relatively short notice to go toward our building project. And we have the prospect of one week from today meeting in that building because God worked through the sacrificial giving and faithfulness of his people in this church. So I'm dealing with it simply because it's the next passage in James. But also, undoubtedly, and this is always the way God works, this is precisely what at least some that are in this room today need to hear. So I am not doing it because... Our church in general has a particular issue. And I'm not doing it because I might know who it is that might need to hear it. I don't. Most of you know that it's our church's policy, has been from day one and will always be, that I do not know who gives what at our church. I never see that. I never ask to see it. 
I'm not privy to that. If I ever did ask to see it from the handful of guys who count it and record it for tax purposes, if I ever asked for it, they would say, you can't see it. I never have. I never will. And so, friends, we need to deal with this topic because God deals with it and because it has a great deal to do with our relationship with God. And because we give such homage to those who are successful in our culture's definition of success by virtue of what they have amassed and acquired materially, we need to have our perspective reoriented by the teaching of Holy Scripture. I mean, think about it. Isn't it really possible to have true success without material possessions? Isn't it possible to have great respect for entrepreneurs who have the ability, God-given ability, to start and build a business and generate wealth, but at the same time be concerned about the very real possible potential ill effects that that can have on our spiritual lives as we amass that wealth. And isn't it possible that those of us who don't consider ourselves wealthy can still have the idol of wealth in our hearts? Even though we haven't achieved it or haven't achieved it to the extent that we would like, it is very possible that we live day by day and week by week with a low-level resentment of those who have. Because we want that. And simply haven't achieved it. We can have the same idolatrous desire even if we don't have the means to acquire it. And so we spend our time dreaming about what if and reading magazines and watching Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. I am really old. That's been gone for a long time. reading bigger and better homes and gardens. That idolatry for all of us then, whether we've acquired or, or not, is revealed in the emphasis on what I have, but it can also be revealed in an emphasis on what I don't have. And so as we look at a passage directed, as we're going to see in verse 1, to rich people, you may tune this out and say, I'm not rich, therefore this doesn't apply to me. But hear this. We live in a unique time in history in the United States of America. If you look at the history of the, the world, the history of civilization, we live in a unique time when upward mobility of just regular people is possible. And that's a blessing from God of living in a country like, like this. The truth is, in most other places in the world today, and certainly throughout history, you were born into your station in life, and you never moved from there. There were those who were born in riches and nobility, and those who were not. And regular folk like us, who have at our disposal discretionary income, you know what I mean when I say discretionary income, it means I've got extra money after I've paid for food and clothing and shelter. I can now make decisions with what I'm going to do with this. Most people in the world and most people throughout history, the vast majority, have lived in a subsistence economy. Simply from day to day, having enough to eat. 
So please understand when the Bible talks about rich people, <laughs> those to whom this was written 2,000 years ago would marvel that regular folk like us have money and can make decisions about our money. So don't blow it off. It applies to us. The principles apply to us. Further, as I've said, we can be jealous. We can desire what those who have amassed it and those who may be sinning in the way they use it are doing so, but we have sinful, idolatrous desire when we want that. Now, why is James talking about this in James chapter 5? Here's why. Because going back to chapter 4 and verse 6, in chapter 4 and verse 6, James quotes the book of Proverbs in the first part of your Bible, and it says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then he goes on in verses 7 through 9 to talk about what we need to do if we recognize the error of our way in humbling ourselves before the Lord. We are to submit ourselves to God, verse 7 of chapter 4 says. We are to weep and wail because of the sins that we've committed. We are to cleanse our hands. We are to come in true, wholehearted, complete repentance before God. And then it's all summarized in verse 10 of chapter 4. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And then beginning in verse 11, we're given three ways in which pride overtakes our hearts and keeps us from having the requisite humility necessary in order to establish or restore a relationship with God. We saw a few weeks ago in verses 11 and 12 of James chapter 4 that how we view other people is an indication of whether or not we have humility in our hearts. The way we view others as evidenced in our talking, verses 11 and 12. And then in verses 13 through 17, the way we view ourselves as evidenced in our planning. And today, the way we bo view both others and ourselves as evidenced in our spending. So I encourage you to take a look at the outline we provided for you in your program. And there we say, and we will see together from James chapter 5. Verses 1 through 6, material wealth often leads to five very negative things. Material wealth often leads to, first of all, misery. Verse 1, James chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. So material wealth often leads to, not inevitably, but most often, leads to a number of negative things. The first of those is misery. And James starts this new section now, giving us this third indication of whether or not we have the requisite humility in order to restore or establish a relationship with God by saying, now listen, you rich people. When he says, now listen, it is, listen up. Everything in the Word of God ought to be important, right? But there are times in the Word of God that you will find statements like, this is a worthy saying, says Paul, and worthy of all acceptance. Listen to this. Or you find Jesus throughout the Gospels saying, 
Truly, truly, I say to you. Listen up. He says twice. And now James is saying, now listen, you rich people. And in principle, now listen, those of us who want to be rich people. Now listen and weep and wail. He's saying, in effect, using Old Testament language, repent. Turn from your love of money and to the love of God. He has talked about what true repentance looks like in chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. And now he is applying that directly to rich people. Weep and wail. Repent in the way that I've talked about in chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. Because of the misery that is coming upon you. Now, what kind of misery are we talking about? Well, there are two kinds. There's subjective misery and objective misery. Subjective and objective. Excuse me one second. I'm trying to hang myself with this uh, microphone. All right. All right, I'm good. Got some slack. There is subjective misery and objective misery. Subjective misery, that is, the misery that one can feel personally as a result of spending his or her life seeking to amass wealth, chasing money. And we've all seen this, haven't we? The person who is a workaholic, chasing after the almighty dollar. And then at the end of it all, they look back and they've stepped on how many people? And they've broken how many relationships? And they get to old age and they have no one around, but they have all of their wealth. And what are they going to do with it? Subjective misery. Now, the truth is, there are some people, many people, who as they chase Almighty Dollar and they go after their God of money, they feel very good about it. But in the end, they cannot, and they know they cannot, take it with them. And so there's this subjective misery that will occur at some point in the life of the person who makes money his or her God. But there's objective misery. That is, God's verdict on what it is that we have done with that which He has entrusted to us. We're going to see in the verses that remain, verses 2 through 6, that God's verdict is always negative with regard to those who seek to hoard and amass wealth and to use it for purposes other than that for which He gave it. Now, I've already explained that we should not dismiss this because it's addressed to rich people because of our unique place in history in America and the upward mobility and the disposable and discretionary income that all of us have available to us. But we always think as we pursue our culture's definition of success as seen by the amassing of money, we always think that we are going to be the exception to the Bible's rule. And friends, I want to warn you, I want to warn you, do not assume, arrogantly assume, that you will be the exception to this rule that God gives over and over and over again. Material wealth is a threat to your spiritual 
health. And so it often leads, does material wealth, to a number of very negative things. The first of those is is misery. But secondly, in verses 2 and 3, it often leads to apathy. Apathy. Your wealth has rotted, says James, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Wow. Now why do I say why do I say apathy? Because here's a person who is pictured chasing after wealth having success at acquiring it, but now failing to use it for the purpose for which God has given it. And as a result, it rots. As a result, it is now only used for moth food. As a result, James says in verse 3, your gold and your silver are corroded. Now think about that. Gold and silver don't corrode. But your gold and silver are corroded in the sense that they have now become useless. Now hear this. They have now become useless, as has been your entire pursuit of that wealth. Your gold and silver are corroded. And their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. It's a reference back to the misery caused by amassing wealth but failing to use it for its God-intended purpose. The subjective misery that will come. And then the indictment is at the end of verse 3, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. And the reason I use the word apathy then is because there's nothing that I need to do. There's no energy putting this wealth into that which God has provided it for. You're simply hoarding it And you're doing so, says James, in the last days. James is reminding us that there ought to be an urgency about using that which God has given us for God's purpose. We ought to see ourselves as in the last day. We ought to see the imminent return of Jesus as possible this afternoon, this next week, this next year. And not simply amassing so that we can have and we can say, we're successful. You've hoarded wealth and you've done so in the last days. So you can disobey God by hoarding that which you have. But I would just add, friends, that we can disobey God by diverting the wealth that God provides toward other things. You see, God has provided it We're in the last days. God has given us a mission to carry out. God has given us our wealth to be the fuel of that mission. But what we do is we either hoard it or we hoard some of it and then we use the rest of it or a lot of the rest of it for other stuff other than what God intended. That's what I mean when I say diverting our wealth. Every time you hoard, what could be given for God's purposes. You are deciding that God's purposes can wait. 
Every time you hoard, instead of using what God has given for his purposes, you are saying God's purposes can wait. Not urgent. And thus I become apathetic. Jesus speaks to this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. So the stuff is going to be useless. It's going to be, as I said, moth food. It's going to corrode. Thieves can break it and and steal it. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now what is this treasure in heaven that we can store up? And we can store up in part by the way we use the material goods that God has placed in our hands. What is this? I'll answer that at the end of our time together. For now, take a look at a third thing that James says material wealth often leads to. It often leads to misery and apathy, but thirdly, insensitivity. Insensitivity. Verse 4. The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. So here you have one who has the ability to enrich the lives of others. In this case, those who are under his care, under his authority by virtue of an employer-employee relationship. And unjustly. And insensitively, he is dealing with those under him. Material wealth often leads to an insensitivity toward the plight of others. Now, why? Well, the reason is because we often, when we achieve success, even if it's success falsely defined, as our culture does, by the acquisition of wealth, when we do that, we tend to think of ourselves as self-made men and women. I am where I am because I got out of bed every morning. I went to work every day. I worked my finger to the bone. I went and got an education. I had to do all of the things in order to amass this wealth. Now you made your bed, you lay in it. If you don't have it, that's your problem. Now isn't that the attitude very often? So material wealth often leads us to an insensitivity toward the station, toward the plight of others. You think about how I, how you, how we look at those who are less fortunate than we are. Do we look on them with derision? Because they don't have what we have? Because presumably they're not the man or woman that we are. They don't have the ingenuity. They don't have the initiative. They don't have the drive. Therefore, that's your problem. Material wealth often leads to misery and apathy and insensitivity. And then verse 5, indulgence. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. So how many of you here, how many of us here, 
spend our minutes and hours, maybe days, thinking about our next exotic vacation with all the amenities and all of the stuff. And we, and we think about it and we plan it. And the people who make the commercials and advertise it, they know that we all have a propensity to worship at the altar of this God, don't they? And so that's why they present it the way they do. And professing Christian people fall for it. Now, getting rest is something the Bible teaches. Jesus rested. He would, the Bible says he would come apart, he would rest, so that he could get back in the game, so to speak. Getting rest is a very good thing. It's a blessing from God. Vacations for the purpose of that respite so that we are re-energized to carry out the mission is a very good thing. Indulgence of God's money is never a good thing. And then fifthly, material wealth often leads to misery and apathy insensitivity, indulgence, and then verse 6, betrayal. Betrayal. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. And here, many commentators, and I agree, see an allusion to how those who were in power, often in power by virtue of their station in life as evidenced by their wealth, betrayed the Lord Jesus. Do you all remember who led the betrayal of Jesus? It was the dude with the money. Do you remember that the one who held the bag, the treasurer for the group, led the betrayal and he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? Material wealth often leads in the direction of doing what I need to do in order to get what it is I want, And even if it means betraying the Lord Jesus and His purposes for my life and the reasons for which He has given me this this wealth, if the God of material possessions has gripped my heart, then I'll be willing to do that heinous thing. Now, how can we apply all of this to you and me? It's decidedly a different context than we live in. It was a context in which you had two classes of people, those who have and those who don't. We live in a middle class, most of us. Something unheard of in most of the world and throughout history, as I've said. So how can we apply this to ourselves? I want to give you a couple of ways that we can practically apply these principles to ourselves. One is this. Be willing to surrender control of your money. Be willing to surrender control of your money. You say, what? Surrender it to who? You? Uh, No. (laughs) Remember, I don't know who gives. The church pays me a salary. That's that. Okay. And no matter how much money our church receives in order to carry out the mission, that doesn't change my remuneration at all. So I'm not paid on commission. And so who are we surrendering it to? Me? No. Some individual? No. But friends, it would be very healthy for those of us, and all of us have this temptation, 
whose hearts are easily gripped by the pursuit of material wealth because it's the currency that allows us to pursue what our idolatrous hearts want, it would be very good for us to be willing to just let money go without strings attached. Just let it go. You don't have to earmark it. You don't have to say it's for this and it better go for that. Just let it go. You say, well, what if it's misused? That's the chance you take, and that's the beauty. It's teaching you a lesson that this does not control me. I don't have to control it because God is in control. It would be very good for all of us to exercise a willingness to surrender control of our money. Ecclesiastes 11 says, Cast your bread upon the water. It's a picture of throwing what you've earned on the water and then seeing what happens with it. Well, what's going to happen when you throw it on the water? You don't know. Who's in control of it? The wind and the waves and ultimately God. And it's a very good thing for us to loosen the grip of the idol of material possessions by being willing to surrender control from time to time. Remember I talked about these treasures in heaven that Jesus mentioned. Well, what are these treasures in heaven? Well, these treasures in heaven are what it is that you and I should work and risk for, which is the second suggestion that I have for you. Be willing to relinquish control of your money from time to time, but then work and risk for the king and his values. Work and risk for the king and what it is he prioritizes, what it is he values. So what are these treasures in heaven, these treasures that God values, treasures of heaven? I mean, after all, you're not going to go to heaven and exchange your good works for a spot in the celestial city, are you? So these treasures in heaven are not, you know, stuff I've amassed, so now God looks and says, okay, you've got enough credit now built up, you can come in. It's not that. And God is certainly not short on dough, so that he's sending flares down here, hoping you'll drop a little his way. What are these treasures in heaven? Do you remember the story of the man who found treasure? Jesus started that story with, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found treasure in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's not what is in the kingdom that is the treasure. Friends, hear this carefully. It's not what's in the kingdom, but who is in the kingdom. Your investments in the kingdom help to populate it with valued people, people valued by Almighty God and who are supposed to be valued by us. And most valuable of all is Jesus himself. And we show that he's most valuable when we put his eternal values over the temporary values our money can buy. So how do you apply this? You work and you risk for the king and what it is, not what it is, who it is he values. 
the expansion of his kingdom. That's why Paul called the Thessalonians his joy and his crown. Hear this. Our investments are not for more money. They are to be investments in the king and in kingdom inhabitants. And the return on our investment is not money. But it's deep joy and satisfaction. The spreading of the glory of Christ in his world now and in his kingdom in the future. And so what is this treasure principle then that Randy Alcorn has titled his book after? He gives it on page 17 of his book. The treasure principle is you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. By investing what God has given you now in what He values, His glory and future kingdom inhabitants. By the way, we have about 20 copies of that book available at the Resource Center. They're $5. You can get those during our break time, which we will have in just a bit. Recently, my family and I have been listening to a CD, a Getty CD. They have a song on there about material wealth. I want to read for you some of the lyrics from that song. They say, Teach me, Lord, to walk this road the road of simple living. To be content with what I own and generous in giving. And when I cling to what I have, please rest it quickly from my grasp. I'd rather lose all the things on earth to gain the wealth of heaven. And they go on to say, Now, Jesus sat at the offering gate as people brought their money. The rich, they filled the collection plate. The widow gave a penny. Now, she's outgiven all the rest. Her gift was all that she possessed. Now, hear these last two lines. Not what you give, but what you keep is what the king is counting. See, what we do is we say, I'm not wrapped up in money because I give. I just got my tax statement from the church and it says I gave X amount. But Jesus was teaching, it's not what we give, it's what we keep. And what we do with what we keep that the king is counting. So what's in your wallet? That's why I say that. It's not what we give, but what we keep. And the take-home truth at the bottom of your outline. Oh, dear friends, please remember, wealth is a threat. Is a threat to spiritual health. Let's bow together before the Lord. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your life, your death, for your teaching. We thank you, Lord, for showing us that material possessions are indeed temporary. They belong to you and they're to be used for you 
and for your purposes. You taught on this, Lord, when you walked the earth over and over again. The Word of God is replete with examples and teachings of the, of the danger and the threat of wealth. And so we thank you that you care enough about your people to warn us and to draw us back and to keep us from the path of pursuing material wealth. And Lord, as you allow us to amass material goods, help us to see the purpose for which you have given those and help us to be faithful rather than faithless in the way we use them. May we use them for what you value, for the expanse of your glory in your world, and for the conversion and the growth of future inhabitants of your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that this church will thereby, through this church, your fame will be spread both in this community and in the regions beyond, because faithful people have increasingly seen the allure of the world and its wealth dim and seen the value and the beauty of Jesus increase. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.